Thank you, Paul, for your prayer and your reading. Um, as Paul mentioned, that uh, we're continuing our series on the life of David, the once and future king. Um, and last week, we looked at the beginning of David's story in the Bible. We looked at how we humans often look upon appearances, especially when we're looking for leaders, whereas God looks upon the hearts of men. That, that means that God cares about our character, that, that God and man's plans are often very different because we value different things. We often have different agendas, and so our ways are often very different from each other. And today, as our story continues, we come across one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, David and Goliath. It's a story many of us have heard before, and maybe some of you will remember or, or go back and watch when Paul preached on this sermon back in 2020. And like then, as we look at this classic story, we'll see that there's more than meets the eye to the story initially. That, that on one level, this is a story between Israel versus the, the Philistines, but there's also another layer, maybe a deeper layer to the story as well. And you see, as we look at this story, we come to it, there's a, a problem that many of us can relate to, and certainly our modern world can. And that's the problem of fear. See, when, when Israel is faced with such a, a surmountable, this giant, this great force in front of them, they respond in fear. Now, we're not facing a, a literal army. We're not in a battle line. We don't have a, a Goliath before us. But many of us, especially given recent events, we are reminded of the reality of war and the dreadfulness of war and how war can bring fear, especially when we see things in Europe. And if, if, if we look in our own lives, many of us struggle with fear. We have things in our life that cause us to fear and to tremble. You know, we might not be thinking of Mediterranean giants at night when we put our heads down on our pillow. But what about rising food prices, gas prices? Will interest rates rise? How will that affect my mortgage? Oh, my kids, I love them, but I'm worried about them. What direction are they going in? Maybe they've gone completely wayward. Maybe, Lord, will I ever find my special someone? Are they out there? Lord, don't take them away from me. I don't want to lose this person. I love them. We have many things that cause us to fear, to wonder, to tremble. And so we too, like Israel, can be worrisome. We can tremble. We can lose sight of things as they actually are. We can sometimes think, I'm doomed. I'm done for. There's no hope for tomorrow. And so like Israel, in the midst of, of our fears and in the midst of their enemy, we need a hero to come before us, to give us hope. We need someone who can deliver us. And so today, as we look at this text, we're going to see three points that emerge from this story that show us the, the gravity of the situation, the weightiness of the situation before Israel and before us, and why we need a hero that only God can provide. That we need, we need God's anointed to go before us. So you see, as the story has been continuing... David has been anointed. We saw that last week. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. But not much has changed in David's life. David is not yet king. Saul is still the king of Israel. David's still out with the sheep. He's out in the fields. But as, as the story continues, an old problem has reemerged for Israel. The, the Philistines have, have come out again for war. They're ready for war. They've gathered their forces and they've, they've come up to this hill. And Saul and the Israelite army respond. They gather their forces and they go to a corresponding hill. So here you have these 
two armies camped out on these two hills with this valley in between. And, and if one of the armies was to advance into the valley, they could expose themselves, leave themselves vulnerable to, to slaughter, to mass casualties. So each side, kind of like, you make the first move. No, you make the first move. They're waiting. And then all of a sudden, as they're looking out across each other, something appears that Israel's never faced before. Something comes forward from the lines of the Philistines. And this brings us to our first point here today. The need for a hero. That in the midst of such a great enemy, God's people need a hero. So what happens is so unusual. A giant comes forward from the armies of the Philistines. Goliath of Gath, I think commentators think there's some debate of how tall he was, but, but he would have probably been around 10 feet tall. Wearing heavy armor, this trained warrior steps forward and he offers a challenge. Rather than both of us suffer mass casualties, have someone come out and represent you, Israel. Fight me on the field. And if I win, you will become our slaves. And if he wins, well, we'll become your slaves. And so Goliath represents a very real threat to God's people. The threat of slavery, of death. Literally, physically, not metaphors. And this is not a game to them. And so for, for 40 days, almost six weeks, Goliath makes this challenge twice a day. Come out and fight me. He taunts Israel. He taunts their God. And the response from Israel, well, you can hear the crickets chirping. No one wants to come forward and fight Goliath because it's a death sentence to them. Because you see, in some ways, if you were to look out in this massive warrior on the field, he looks like someone who, who could be a hero, who maybe should be a hero if he was on the good side. He's this massive man. Earlier, before the passage we read, we're told that the body armor he's wearing, just the body armor, weighed about 125 pounds. He's carrying this, this massive spear and javelin. The, the head of the spear alone weighed about 15 pounds. He's got this iron helmet on, so he's, he is decked out with the latest and best technology of their day. He's this, this towering figure. If you can imagine, if you like basketball, maybe a, a Shaquille O'Neal or a Joel Embiid. He is this intimidating figure, except he is an excellently trained warrior, not just a basketball player. He, he's someone Israel would be looking on and said, Lord, why couldn't he be on our side? <laughs> he looks the part. And from our eyes, from a human perspective, he can't be beaten. No one can take this guy on. We don't have anyone like this, this skilled, this big, with his thick armor. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't pierce it from far away with an arrow. If you were to, to fight him, he could throw his spear at you from a distance and kill you. If you actually get to him, well, then you have this massive giant with a sword. And this hand-to-hand -hand combat, bruising, probably not going to come out on top of that. To fight Goliath is a death sentence. And, and what is, is Goliath timid? What, what, what is Goliath like? No, in the story, Goliath is just oozing with pride. He is so self-confident. He is so arrogant. He just loves taunting them and their God. And ju just as he taunted Israel and their God earlier, when eventually the battle happens, but before David and him go head to head, it says that he looked over in verse 42. He looked David over, and he saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. 
Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. He is big. He is mean. He is self-assured. And he is a very real threat to Israel and God's people. But also, in a darker and perhaps a deeper way, Goliath represents another kind of threat. Not just to Israel, not just to David, but to us, to you and me. You see, a hero is on the side of good, and so when a hero wins, when they triumph, they represent truth, they bring justice, they bring hope, salvation. But what do you call this, this great figure who brings destruction, falsehood, slavery, death? They're a villain. You might say that, that a villain is like a, a corrupted hero on the side of evil, like a demon is a corrupted angel on the side of evil. And so in this case, Goliath doesn't just represent a regular enemy on the battlefield, this is a typical war, but unknowingly to Goliath, he is actually on the side of Satan. That, that he is actually on the spiritual forces of evil who oppose God and his people. Now maybe you're thinking, oh, okay, hold on, hold on. Are you making a little bit much of this? You're kind of being a bit dramatic here. Well, think back to Genesis 3 for a moment with me. See, all had been good in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve are, are thriving. But then they're tempted by the serpent, by, by the devil or, or Satan. And sin is ushered into the world. Everything is broken. Humanity is fallen and lost without hope by ourselves. But as Genesis 3 is describing the fall of the world, we're given a glimmer of hope, a seed of hope. In verse 15 of Genesis 3, God, when speaking to the serpent, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You see, right after the fall, there is a promise by God that there will be a descendant of Adam and Eve who will eventually crush the serpent's head. That there will be this seed, this offspring to come who will one day defeat the devil, defeat sin, defeat death. That he will end the estrangement between God and his people. That there will be a Messiah in the, the Hebrew, a, a Christ in, in the Greek, it literally in English, there will be an anointed one. But you also notice that there are two sides mentioned here. One, Satan's side. The other, God's side. One, who will bring about falsehood and slavery and death and destruction. And the other, who will bring hope and life and salvation. And, and this is actually the true epic story that, that covers the, the Bible and covers our world See, our lives are far more than just our personal stories of what we did this week. Our lives are far bigger. They're part of a bigger story than just the story of Canada. What's the history of our nation? It's far bigger than the history of Western civilization. No, our lives are part of this grand story, greater story, the, redempt the story of redemptive history, of God redeeming, making a way for his people to be redeemed, to be reunited with him. And so here we have Goliath, this champion of the Philistine army. But also, in a way, he is part of this grand um, theme traced throughout Scripture. 
He is on the side who opposed God and his people, who opposed this future hero, this future king who will come. And on the other side here in this story, then you have God, you have his his covenant people, from whom this Messiah, this ultimate hero, will come. And think back to that verse in Genesis, and we might think, your offspring, Goliath, and hers, David. And so here we have the Philistines, represented by Goliath, and Israel looking for someone to represent them here on the battlefield. You have the Philistines who represent opposition to the living God, and, and who, if they are successful from a human point of view, then, then they will either wipe out God's people, or God's people will be enslaved. And in either scenario, is, is, either scenario would be catastrophic for both of us, Israel and us here today. See, if Goliath and the Philistines win, there will be no more Israel. There will be no descendant of David. If there is no descendant of David, there will be no Jesus. And if there is no Jesus, then we have no hope. The, the line, the lineage of the seed to come is broken. And so although this battle happened a long time ago, it is not irrelevant. It's not just an interesting tidbit. It is actually very real to our lives, has great implications for our lives, because whether you are a believer yet or you're not, whether you realize it or not, our hope, our eternal hope, hangs in the balance of what happens here. If if Goliath wins, we have no hope. So the stakes are high. The stakes are very high. The stakes are high for Israel. The stakes are high for you. The stakes are high for me. The stakes are high for our world. And the problem is clear. Against such a great foe, Israel need a greater savior. If you're familiar with, with Bonnie Tyler, Israel would agree with her. I need a hero, and he's got to be larger than life. And this leads to our second point, the hero we don't need, the hero we don't need. Think about what has happened up to this point in the story. David, it begins, David's off taking care of the sheep. His brother, three of his brothers have gone off to join Saul and his army. And and David's dad, Jesse, instructs him, you know, go to them, bring some supplies to them, and and off David goes. And when he enters the camp and he's talking with his brothers and, and other men, Goliath appears and makes this daily challenge, this taunt to Israel and towards God. And so David, he hears this, and in verse 24, when Goliath appears, Israelites' response is to run away in fear. They're terrified of Goliath. And David says, well, what will you get for the man? What will the reward be for the man who kills him? And then we get this, this great line um, in that, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? who defies the armies of the living God. David's response is, who do you think you are, Goliath, to defy Israel, to defy the real God? And um, it's interesting here that, that David gets a response, or initially rebuke people don't support David in this. He's, he's pressured, but David will not back down. The others might cower in fear, but David will not. The the others might think that to fight Goliath is a death sentence, but David has hope. Can you imagine um, if you're walking down the street late at night, maybe in Hamilton, downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto, 
and, and this giant man, maybe with a knife or a gun, jumps out and wants to fight you, what would initial response be? I'd be terrified. I think most of us would respond with fear. We'd be terrified. Well, that is the response from David's brothers, from Israel. And then there's, a, there's an irony to that. Because in 1 Samuel 8, when Israel's trying to make the case of why they should have a king, why they need a king and not just God to be their king, after God tells them this won't go well for you, Israel responds in 1 Samuel 8 by saying, We want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us, to go out before us, and to fight our battles. Israel's convinced that the king they want will be the hero they need, that, that he will rise to the occasion when the need comes. They think if we just had the right person, We'd be fine. We'd have someone to save us. And aren't we similar in our culture today? We don't have kings, or kings and queens are rare and few between. But, but we think if we just have the right people in charge, they, they can save us. They'll rise to the occasion. If we just had the right people in charge, the economy would, would just be booming, it would be flourishing. Housing would be affordable. There'd be no more inflation. All the problems, there'd be peace around the world. All the problems of our world would be solved if we just had the right person in charge. Well, when the day has come for Israel, where's their guy? Where's their king? Where's their king Saul? He's nowhere to be found yet. He's off safe in his tent, behind, in his lines. He's, he's very comfortable. And, and, and so in a way... Saul is a failed king. Saul is, is the antithesis to David. See, see Saul is, is fearful, and his response is, okay, okay, I can't, I can't fight Goliath and win. Well, you know what? Maybe if I use some of my wealth, use some of my resources, I can find someone to take my place. And in a way, doesn't that make, make sense to us? I mean, look at Goliath. He's under, he, you can't beat him. He's an elite warrior, a massive man. Saul's thinking to myself, this is a death sentence. What's the, what's the good of being king if you aren't alive to enjoy it? And so Saul thinks, I have money, I have a daughter I can use in political marriage, I have power so I can exempt you and your family, you can help other people, exempt them from taxes. I don't want to do this, but perhaps I can find a substitute in my place. And so Saul does not turn to God. Saul does not ask God for help or wisdom. Saul is purely focused on his self-preservation on his resources, his wealth. What, what can I do to get out of this situation or solve the problem? And isn't that so human as well? How many times when we, we don't want to do something or we're afraid to do something, well, isn't our response, well, can, I, can I, you know what, you'd be perfect for this. You go instead of me. We try to get someone else to do it. Or when we, we can't get out of something, how often is our response, okay, how can I do this? What's my network? You know, what, what are my resources? How can I solve this problem myself? Rather than turn to God. And so where does this get Saul and Israel? In their moment of greatest need, their hero lets them down. Doesn't just let them down, actually, but, but he fails miserably. He is passive and he is captive by fear. See, there are some things that, that are not wrong to be afraid of. In one sense, it's not wrong to be afraid of Goliath. There are some things in your life they're not wrong to be afraid of. But, but Saul is captive by his fear. See, rather than, than turning to God in his fear, rather than doing what he ought despite our fear, he is afraid and does nothing. 
and does not trust. Saul fails to be the hero Israel needed. Saul is dominated by fear and cowardice. And we know from what happened last week in our story that Saul is no longer God's specially anointed one. That God will continue the line from whom the Savior will come through someone else. And so Saul is unwilling to meet Goliath and he is unable to defeat the great enemy before him and God's people. In the presence of evil, he cowers and he cannot triumph. He shows himself to be someone that Israel cannot trust and someone that God will not use. And and here is another important point, an implication for us to remember. See, our modern heroes, whether they are politicians, whether they're some sort of expert, whether they're athletes, even if they're pastors, all of them are human. All of them can never be the ultimate, the true, perfect hero that we need. In the end, every single one of them, man or woman, they will come up short. They will fail us in some way. Our humanly anointed heroes will never be able to defeat our ultimate and biggest enemies in our life. And as another point of clarification, it's not wrong to look up to people or to admire people for their talents. But it's when we put our ultimate trust in them that we go astray, that we're setting ourselves up to be disappointed, and that we need to be humbly reminded our human solutions to life's greatest problems won't work. They take divine answers. So Saul comes up short. Saul disappoints. Saul and all those like him are not the heroes we need. And that leads us to our third and final point. The hero we do need. The hero we do need. See, we we have seen that Israel faced a a real danger, and and this danger is very relevant to us and our future. But it's it's interesting that this this pressing need, amidst a pressing need for a, a hero to arise and take on Goliath, the figure we would expect, Saul is not the guy, the figure we would not expect, the unlikely hero, arises. You see, when David comes and he hears Goliath's challenge, he wants to know what the reward will be. And we, that great line in verse 26, who is this Philistine? And despite his older brother's rebuke, he will not be pushed away. He, he won't be disregarded for his youth or his inexperience. And he, he's brought before Saul and he says, I'm willing to take on Goliath. I'll take him. I'll fight him. And now, now pause for a moment. When we read this, you know, David is young and he is a shepherd boy and he is not a seasoned warrior. But it's also important for us to remember that David is not just any young shepherd boy. That as we saw last week, David is God's anointed young shepherd boy. That the spirit of the Lord has come powerfully upon David. See, as God's anointed, empowered by his spirit... David is willing to be his people's representative and go up before them and fight for them. Now, now Saul, when he hears this, he's initially dismissive. You can see that in verse 33. You're too young, David. David, you're not experienced. You don't have the, the right credentials for this. You're not the guy, sorry. But rather boldly, David pushes back against his king. And he makes his case through th- verses 34 to 37. He basically admits, yes, I'm young, but I've also killed lions and bears while shepherding my sheep. You know, I, I might not be a warrior in the conventional sense, but I'm not, I'm not without skills. I am not without talents. 
But David then is also very clear, it's not just me that I'm focused on. He credits it to God, that God has enabled him to defeat the lion and the bear. See, David, like Goliath, is confident. But unlike Goliath, David is not confident in himself. David is not confident in his resources or his technology. No, David's confidence is in God himself. And so David presses, and and we see this in verse 37. He says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Based on what God has done, I trust God will do. David might be the instrument, but God is the ultimate agent. That's important for us to remember. That's important for us to hear. David is the instrument. God is the agent. Saul relents and he says, okay, uh, we're we're kind of desperate. It's been over 40 days. (laughs) Okay, here, put on my armor. Here, use my sword. But none of it fits David. It's not right for David. He's too young. He's too small. See, unknowns to Saul, David will one day become king. But that day's not yet. He's not ready for that. Today he will fight, but he will fight as a shepherd. And he he goes off, he has a sling and a staff and and five stones, and and he meets Goliath in the valley, on the battlefield. And he's met with with scorn and contempt. And Goliath looks at him him and, and literally and figuratively looks down upon David. No respect for him. And and David is very clear again. He says, you come at me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. You threaten God's people. You mock God. You try to kill and enslave God's people. Well, he's going to deliver you to me today. You are a dead man, Goliath. See, David, even before battle, his concern is with God and his people, God's honor, God's glory. And so they move towards each other. Goliath, this gigantic man, slow. And David's small and quick. And David takes one of his stones and he slings it around and he he fires it. And you think that you could probably fire that sling. It would probably be faster than a a fastball in baseball. It would be over 100 miles an hour. And it hits Goliath in the head, forehead. And it beds in his forehead. And Goliath, you can picture him stumbling. And falls down. Dead. On the ground. If you've ever watched uh, the movie Gladiator... There's this scene in the movie where this uh, former general who becomes a gladiatorial slave, Maximus, is injured. And he is to fight in the Colosseum, the emperor of Rome, Commodus, a skilled swordsman. And they they fight in the Colosseum. And Maximus, to the surprise of everyone, kills the emperor. And there's this scene where this stunned silence sweeps over the Colosseum. And people are shocked at what they just saw. Didn't we just see that? What just happened? And David runs over while everyone's shocked. He, he takes out Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. And just to make sure that it's not a fake, he picks up Goliath's head. David 
defeated Goliath, the shepherd boy, defeats the giant. And when that finally sinks in, the tables turn. The Philistines are filled with fear, and they flee. And Israel, Israel finally finds their courage, and they run forward after their enemies. See, God's people are delivered from slavery and death. The great enemy who opposes God and his people is defeated. The faithful hero defeats the villain, and it is all by God's doing. Not his people, not even David. David is his instrument. And so what should we take away from this? See, when we, when we hear this story, we should not think of it as just a call to, to buck up and be more courageous. We should not hear and read this story and think, read ourselves in as David. No, but rather when we see David as this hero going before his people, that should make us think of another greater hero to come, his descendant, Jesus Christ. Quite literally, Jesus, the anointed one. And, and see, it is, is not that it is wrong to look at this story and be encouraged by it, emboldened, amen. But we should train ourselves to look to Jesus first. And see, Jesus defeated the far greater Goliath. He defeated someone greater than Goliath, greater than the Roman Empire. We might say on the cross in his death, we might say that Jesus was, was struck down by Goliath's sword in our place. That when we look to his work on the cross, we see that, that Jesus is the one who finally defeated our ultimate enemy. That he crushed Satan's head. That he defeated the slavery to sin. That he killed death itself. That he has ended the estrangement between God and his people. That, that on the cross, we see something far greater than David and Goliath. We see the pinnacle, the climax in all of redemptive history. And he did so as his people's representative. Just as David went forward and represented Israel, so, for, so on the cross, Jesus went forward and represented us, all those who believe in him. He, and just as David was the unlikely hero people did not expect in that manner, in that way, Jesus is the unlikely hero who achieved victory in a way people did not expect, surprised them. And friends, when we truly take that in, when we realize what Christ has done for us on our behalf, we realize, yes, I have a lot of problems in my life. I have a lot of things I am fearful of. And they are real and they do not matter. I'm not discounting that. But none of them are bigger than our problem with sin before a holy God. You may have enemies in your life, real enemies. You may have people in your life. Russia and Ukraine may have enemies in their life. None of our earthly enemies are greater than death itself. And so, if your greatest enemies, sin and death, have been defeated by Christ. That, when we take hold of that, that will begin to change our minds. That will begin to have ripple effects in our heart, in our life. Our biggest problems in life, sin and death, are dealt with. They have been conquered by our great king, our great hero, Jesus. He has gone before you. He has gone before me and fought on our behalf. Notice in the story... Israel eventually finds their courage. But Israel finds their courage only after their greatest enemy is dead and only after their great hero goes before them. 
Well, we too, we can grow less fearful. We can grow in courage. But that, that takes time, and it's the Spirit's work in our hearts. See, in Christ, we realize that we don't need to be dominated by fear at night when we put our heads on our pillows. See, knowing that he is before us, we can say that, that he's before me, that he has defeated my greatest enemies. When we realize that, that brings hope. That brings comfort. That brings encouragement. And that helps us fight against our hearts who are so often timid, prone to fear, prone to despair. See, when we're afraid, we must train ourselves not to look within, not even to look out at what causes our fear, but to look to Christ, our great hero, our king, our champion, our faithful hero. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your amazing stories, Lord, and how you've worked in history, how you've worked in your people's lives, Lord. And we remember today that you have already worked in our lives, that you are working here this morning, that you are the living God, the God of the past, present, and future, that you hold the whole world in your hands, that you hold the outcomes, even of the hardest battles, you hold the outcome in your hand. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to to encourage one another, that we can be honest with each other about our fears and that we can bring them to you, that we would help each other and that we would point each other to Christ, our great Savior, our King. We pray this in his name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. And are we doing Q&A? Yeah, so... Uh... At Grace Valley, uh, one of the things we do if we have time after a sermon is we will take a, a moment or two to answer any questions that people might have related to the message. My number hopefully can be put on the screen. Yep, there it is. Uh, you can call, uh, you, not call, well, I guess you could call, but I'm assuming you could text my number uh, and if you have any questions and uh, uh, we'll take them up. I do. We have one question. Oh, we have two questions. Here we go. Okay. Yeah, this is the hard I, I would encourage you, hard questions. Please give to Paul. Here we go. Here's your question. Okay. How would you advise someone who is facing a Goliath mm. in their life that science or medicine can fix? Should we trust the world system or put our faith in God and trust in his providence? Um... In general, I would say those two things do not need to conflict with one another. Now, when you say science in general, that can be vague. So there could be a lot of caveats to that. But if the basic question is, is basic medicine, modern medicine, wrong? Is that not trusting in God's providence? I would argue, no, that's not. Um, in a similar way, we trust, trusting in safety protocols for buildings is not, not trusting in the providence of God. Um, you can trust in the Lord, and you can still use modern medicine in general. Okay. And I would just, I would just add a reminder that, that, that the story is not meant to be read as Goliath represents the hard things in your life, and you have to be brave like David and trust in God, and you can defeat them right? 
as Keith said, this story is a redemptive historical story. It's meant to be part of the grand story of the coming of, of Jesus, the one who ultimately defeated our ultimate, uh, our ultimate enemy. Next question. This is an interesting question. Is there a significant meaning to David picking up five pebbles instead of one? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, if you read different commentators, people will come up with all sorts of reasons of what the five could represent. Uh, to myself, I guess I would honestly say, I don't know. When I read it, I read that as simply five stones. I don't think there's a, a huge, I don't think there's symbolic or metaphorical for things. I think some have, one interesting theory I, I guess I read was, um, there's a thought that Goliath would have had other members. And so maybe they represent Goliath's family, wiping that out. Um, but no, I think it's five stones because that's what David picked. Why did David pick five? I don't know. Did you say Goliath's members? Like his family, family members. members would have been standing there with him? That is what, there's lots of different theories. And that's where I, I would be just, as a way of reading the Bible, I'd be very careful into trying to, every number we're told, especially of things, maybe I shouldn't have said that, um, I think you go off astray when you start saying, is that a metaphor for something? What does that represent all the time? I would, I would take it as picked up five stones because that's what he did. So it, you can correct me or you can... No, I don't have a better answer than that other okay. than I was going to say, does it demonstrate... Oh, it answers the question about faith in God and science. Hmm. Think about it. He trusted God, but he wasn't too dumb to say, I'm going to hit him on the first shot. <laughs> so I better grab five stones. Uh, that's very good. That's that the best I have. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's going to end up in my commentary someday. Any other questions? I thought I saw a hand. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the question is, basically, how, as modern people, and if you're not familiar with the Bible and biblical history, you hear this story of, you know, David kills Goliath, and then he cuts off his head. What's up with that? Like, why, why does he have to also cut off the head, this sort of brutal display of violence mm. uh, as part of this like how do we how do we reconcile that as Christians living today where we probably are not inclined to cut off our enemies heads yes um, that is a great question Evan um, so in a number of things when we're reading historical narrative it tells us what happened um, doesn't sugarcoat things or kind of, and so when we read some of these things sometimes 
It's not an endorsement necessarily. In this case, while it is gruesome to us, and I'm open to correction here, it clearly, definitively shows everyone. Goliath is dead, and the only way that can be is by the Lord. So it is a gruesome testament, but it is a, a clear, undisputable, you know, this isn't a, a fake video or a fake selfie that's being edited. Goliath is no more. Those who defy God are done away with. Um, how, and it would also be, it's not torture. Goliath's already dead. Um, how we should respond, is that, if I'm understanding correctly, how that means for us as Christians in a new, the new covenant? Yeah, so how are we supposed to reconcile this with our faith, which calls us to be peace? Like, basically, that it's, that's a pretty violent Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're Christians and we're peacemakers. Uh, how do we reconcile that violent Old Testament with our modern New Testament faith? Uh, back then, Israel is God's covenant people. They are a nation. Um, and so as a nation, they have to defend themselves. They, are, they have given God-given commands. Whereas the church today, in a sense, it's a nation, but it, the church is made up of people of all nations. So it does operate differently from ancient Israel in some ways. And so the church's mandate is not to make physical war. Uh, we're, we're, so we don't have the exact same mandate as Israel does. So our, our task, our aim is different. Um, that's, I guess, how I would, would answer that. Okay. Um, yeah, progressive revelation is an important thing to remember when we're reading scripture, right? So we read that Abraham had more than one wife. We read that David had more than one wife. Uh, but we're not, we're not saying the Bible endorses that because it was descriptive, not prescriptive. In this situation, what's interesting actually is Goliath, and, and Keith um, alluded to it, Goliath actually proposes a more humane way of dealing with their issue. He says, why don't we each send a representative to fight and we'll kill each other, but we, then we won't have like mass killings happening when, the, when, when both our armies go to war. And historically, actually, that is not all that uncommon. That, that would happen as a way of trying to avoid um, two armies, you know, slaughtering one another and there being fields covered of dead people, like in, you know, what's that, uh, Braveheart or something like that. Um, but the other thing is, is like, that's how people were back then. Like, they were less civilized because they're estranged from God. And God is working, trying to, to, to bring them to a place of more humanity. I actually, I was... I was glad there wasn't a Q&A last week and someone was going to say, why did God say that, that Saul was supposed to wipe out all the Amalekites and all their animals and all their stuff? That seems pretty judgmental and harsh. But nobody asked it, so we didn't have to answer it. And nobody asked it today, so we don't have to answer it. 